Next week's lesson, if you'll raise your hand, our men will give you one. And be sure and take them home and spend some time reading the passage of Scripture and preparing your own heart and studying. It's my, my desire to not only teach you, but teach you how to learn. And so I hope you will. Tonight we're going to, you're going to have to use your brain tonight. I hope you brought it with you. Uh, I had a pastor friend who said he, it was an awakening experience for him. He said one day leaving the church, one of the men of the congregation said to him, I refuse to leave my brain at home. And he said that was an a eye-opening experience for him. He decided he should uh, challenge people's minds. And I trust besides the, the uh, normal stuff that you'll be thinking along with me, because we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight. But it, it is so important in every section of Scripture to understand the context. Uh, really, to not understand that, you, you lose a good bit of the value of the teaching. Ephesians is a wonderful book. Uh, Ephesians begins with three chapters of doctrine, uh, some great high doctrine of Scripture. Uh, Ephesus was a beautiful city, a very sophisticated city, and uh, the, the, the doctrine was so important. But remember, these were first-generation Christians. Uh, the gospel had gone out to Ephesus, which is now in Turkey, and uh, was uh, entered into that city. Paul started two churches, the one in Ephesus and the one in Corinth, the two most wicked cities in all the Roman Empire. And he went to that city and established a work. And by the way, you probably know that John, John the, the Beloved, was also pastor of the church after Paul left, and then Timothy after him. But the church has a great history. Uh, but to remember, these were first-generation Christians. So after the first, the first three chapters of doctrine... Paul turns attention to practical application. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. Uh, we believers have sat under the preaching of word. Most of us have been in churches. Uh, we've heard the preaching. We've heard the teaching. We have been uh, had the opportunity to live like that our life. But the fact is, Jesus said, to build your house on a rock, hearing the word is not enough, but learning to do the word. Learning to obey the word, not to be hearers only, but to be doers of the word. And therefore, as we look at these practical things tonight, I want you to understand to try to put yourself in the, in the place of a person who's never heard these things before. This is all new. The, matter of fact, Christianity is new. And they're living in a totally heathen context. All of their culture, their background is totally heathen. But let me say that we, too, are living in a totally heathen context. And the sad thing is that many believers are more like the culture than they are the scriptures. It's amazing to me, I, I was reading, a, just caught a part of an article today in the Washington Post, of all places, that said it's time that Christians become salt and light. There's not any difference between the average Christian and the average person in the world, and therefore Christians are no longer salt and light in culture. And I say to that, I'm sorry, but that's an amen. Uh, that is the truth. Now, I can't do anything about the world. Uh, I can't do anything about United except to preach the word to you and to the opportunities that I have. But I want you to see tonight an overview of what Paul is talking about and to compare, not others, but to compare yourself with what Paul says is the responsibility of the Christian. So, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we're going to uh, just hit through some of these things because it's important to see it. 
In Ephesians 4.1, notice the, notice the beginning. Now understand, look at this book again. Let me show you again. He is taught doctrine. And based on the doctrine, based on where we are in Christ, what had Christ has given us. Now here are the responsibilities that God has given us. Now this is how a Christian is to live. And notice the very first thing he says, Therefore, the, uh, I, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Walk as a Christian should walk. And this was strange news to them. This was not the way they were raised. This is not the culture in which they lived. Notice the next thing. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. They live in a multi-God uh, culture. Uh, they lived in a, a heathen land where idols and, and worship was not the way it should be. And now he says, look, the first thing we need to do is to walk worthy of vocation, and there's one body and one... And by the way, Pastor Todd mentioned tonight, this is not a, a, a given thing. Even in the book of Acts, in the very first part of the, the century, there was a dispute between the Jews and the Gentiles. And uh, Pastor Todd this morning dealt so well with that, with that idea of setting aside those differences. And Ephesians deals with that in, in detail in the first part. But again, he reminds them that a responsibility of a group of believers is to have unity, to be on the same page, to believe the same things. And this is strange, strange words. Look, if you would, uh, in verse 11, it talks about the, what is the, the role of the pastor. And here, here's what they might ask. What is a pastor? I mean, do you realize they, don't have, they haven't had pastors? When Paul went to, went to Ephesus, he started the church. He had nobody. Then suddenly he had to be the pastor. Now there are other people who, are, who followed him. But this idea of being a pastor, what does a pastor do? Well, look at this. He says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, look at this, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and of the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. My, the goal of a pastor is to bring the people to a knowledge of Christ, the, the, to be one in doctrine, to be strong, to understand uh, the truth that they've never heard before, to live a different way based on what is taught in the Scriptures. So Paul, after, well, after he preaches there, comes and writes this letter back to them to remind them the pastor's job. Here's what he is. Here's what he's to do. Look, if you would, uh, in verse 17, very important. Verse 17 says, I, This I say, therefore, and testify in, uh, in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. You see... When you grow up in a culture, you tend to accept the morals, the, the, the ethics, the, the uh, goals of a culture. And now Paul says, listen, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. Uh, I've said this before, but it was R. Ken Hughes in his book, Set Apart, says, if we are just like the world, we have nothing to say to the world. And I'm telling you, that's, that's one of the saddest things that's happening is there are many believers you would not know by their life 
that they're even they're even saved. The way they live, the way they think, their entertainment, uh, all those things. But he says specifically, don't walk as other Gentiles don't walk. Now understand, that's where they live. That's the people they live among. And Paul, Paul, Paul is reminding them, don't walk like that. Notice if you would also in verse number 20, 22 and 24, that you put off concerning the former conversation, manner of life, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Can you comprehend how that would sound to someone who never heard that before? To put off the old man. Uh, the, the, the old way of life, the things that you had before you were saved, what was that like? Put it off. Put it off. And then renew your mind. You see, part of what we need to do is understand the scriptures. So we need to renew our mind. And what that means is more than just hearing it, but it is learning to think God's thoughts after him. Learning to see the world through his eyes. Learn, this morning's passage, pastor's message, uh, the, the Jews needed to see the Gentiles as brothers. And that was hard for them. They, they had their own culture, their own things they did. And they had a hard time seeing things through the eyes of Christ. And therefore the apostles were teaching them the process. But likewise, we ourselves need to learn to renew our mind. It's so easy. We're so bombarded with information all the time. And yet we need to learn to think things like God would see them, to see things. And even, even again, excuse me, I'm, I'm quoting you a lot tonight. I don't mean to do that to make you feel good. But, uh, you know, how do we see a sinner? Uh, you know, it is easy to be repulsed by a lifestyle, to be repulsed of a, of a choice, to be repulsed of the way they, they live, the way they react. But that's not the way Christ saw them. He saw them as sheep having no shepherd. He saw them as men who were dying. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, he said. So we need to change the way we think, the way we see things. And then also, we need to learn to put on the new man. Put on the new man. To be a different person. To let God change our life. And by the way, the change that takes place is not from the outside in. It's from the inside out. Uh, we, can, we can follow a set of rules. Uh, we can do certain things because that's what's expected of us to do. But that's not the Christian life. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about changing that comes from the inside and becoming that new man. And then he talks about specific things. Interesting that he talks in general, kind of corporate issues first. But notice what he deals with next. Look at verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, let every man speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. So he talks about lying. Then he talks about anger. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more. You mean Christians do those kind of things? Well obviously they did. In Ephesus anyway. And he's talking about these very personal things. That were part of their life that they needed now to let God change them. And then, of course, he goes on to this corrupt communication. Don't let corrupt communication. Last week, that's what we talked about. We'll not go through that again. But notice, if you would, in chapter 5, it says, 
Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Look in verse number 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Notice carefully, don't have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. In other words, don't do what they do. Don't live like they live. Don't have the same standards they have. Don't have the same ethics they have. But we are to be followers of God as dear, dear children. Uh, walk, verse 8 says, Ye, now get this, ye who were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord, walk as children of light. Again, Jesus said in, in Matthew, we are salt and light. A salt to, to inhibit corruption, salt to make men thirsty, but light to show men the way. And if we are not walking as children of light, where will they ever see the light? You know, salvation often begins with a relationship or someone seeing a Christian who is a real Christian. And I will say this, as wicked as our world is, the younger generation is looking for reality. They're looking for something that is true, that is bigger than themselves, that is important, something that really has meaning. And their life, the things they've chosen to do, have offered no satisfaction. We know that the broad road always leads to destruction. The narrow road always leads to, and yet many, there be that choose the broad road. And it's sad to say there are many people that leave a pew in a church to walk out the door and choose the broad road. And what's the saddest thing about that? You know, again, I've used this illustration before. Let me say it this way. As a pastor, many times, as someone would come to me with an issue, would talk about it, and I would try to show them from the scriptures what the answer was and direction the need to take. And they would leave my office saying, nah, I'm not going to do that. That's too, you, don't, you, don't, you don't understand my situation. I'm just not going to do that. And in my heart, I would always say, oh my, there's a train wreck coming. They, listen, my friend, choosing the broad road always leads to destruction. It always does. Hey, Galatians 5, be not deceived. What's the next part? God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, what's the rest of it? You see, this the law of sowing and reaping. The fact of the matter is, if a person chooses the broad road, so he's saying, look, be followers of God. Walk as children of light. Learn to walk as a Christian. Learn to talk as a Christian. Notice verse 15. He goes on. These are all personal standards. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. In other words, have a wise walk. Understand the world as it is. Let me say this. God's declarations always conform to reality. In other words, what God says is always true. And the way he describes it is always true. And how he says it's going to end up is always true. Listen, God has given us choices. We make choices every day. Sometimes those choices are, are catastrophic choices. We make a huge choice. So we have the freedom, now listen carefully, we have the freedom to make choices. However, we do not have the freedom to control the, the results of those choices. Did you get it? 
We have the freedom to make choices. Yes, we do. Yes, you can choose the broad road. You can walk as a Gentile's walk. You can walk as a sinner walks. You can have the same mind as they do. However, you can choose that. But you do not have the ability to, to choose the result. God chooses the results. And what God says is always true. And, you know, we don't break God's law. We break God against God's law. So, so uh, walk circumspectly. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, uh, let me find the right place here. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fool, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. How much time do you have? How many years are you going to live on the earth? You know, that, the, at a graveside, you have the, birth, the date of birth and the date of death, and in, in the middle, there's a, there's a little dash. That's your life. How long is that? Well, we don't know, do we? But these early Christians were told to redeem the time. The days are evil. You need to, to set your heart on serving God. And then verse 17 reminds us, Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, I hope you understand, these things would sound very, very strange to someone who grew up in a heathen culture. Who, By the way, uh, in the South when I was growing up, anytime you ever witnessed anybody in the South, they always told you that their grandfather was a Baptist preacher. There must have been 10 million Baptist preachers in the world. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. They would always say that. My, oh, my granddaddy, he was a Baptist preacher, you know? And like, that's going to get him into heaven or something. I'm not sure why they said that, but they always did. But these people couldn't say, my granddaddy was anything but a heathen. And my daddy was anything but a heathen. And I'm nothing but a heathen either. And therefore, these changes are dramatic. And of course, after talking about the general things and talking about personal responsibilities, he turns his attention to the home. And that's where we are. So that was a long introduction to our short message. But the fact is, the Lord has some very specific things to say about the home. Now before we say that, I need to show you one other thing. Sometimes in studying the Bible, particularly when we take a passage of Scripture, there are things that are there in plain sight and we don't see them. For example, in this chapter, in this passage, there is a priority system that is, that is explained here that, you know, it's obvious that this is the, the way it should be. And here's what it is. Look, if you would, uh, at, in, in, verse, in, in, in chapter uh, 5, be not drunk with wine where in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Our first responsibility is to God. You, you will not have the right kind of marriage, the right kind of home, the right kind of life, if God is not number one, if God is not the one sitting on the throne. Now let me say something else. He sits on the throne or somebody else sits on the throne, that's probably you. So the first, the first responsibility is toward God. What is the second responsibility? Husband and wives. That's the next thing dealt with in the scriptures. In other words, the second thing we're concerned about is our husband and wife. That's a connected relationship. The third relationship is our children. And the fourth relationship is our job. Let me, let me go back to the thing about, about the home and the children again. 
uh, I think it was Gary Narcus. Gary was here this morning. He was here for that celebration. And I think he used the illustration. And here's, here's the way it did. He, he said, form a circle. Husband and wife holding hands and the children are in the middle. He said, that's the way many homes are configured. In other words, husband and wife, but all the attention, all this is based on the children. Are you listening? I have known homes run by four-year-olds. I'm certain. I have seen it. I've seen it more than once. Uh, I have known homes run by teenagers. Now, here's the Bible model. The Bible model is husband and wife and the children holding hands all in a circle. Okay. In other words, the, the, the husband and wife relationship is primary. Then, the relationship with the children, and we'll touch on that briefly tonight. And then last of all, he talks about servants. The, the, the job is the last thing. Now, I'll say this, with, with men particularly, and I'm sure with ladies too sometimes, uh, it is hard. It is easy to be wrapped up in your work. It's easy for a pastor to be wrapped up in his ministry so much that he neglects his wife. My dear sweet wife sitting over here, you know, wonderful lady, she came to my office one day and said to me, what do I have to do to get an appointment to come talk to you? Oops. You see what I'm saying? In other words, and her thought was, you're busy talking to everybody else. You have time for everybody else to come in and talk to you, but I don't have time to come in and talk to you. So we have to understand that my relationship, first of all, for my wife, is very, very important, the marriage relationship. But let's look how it starts. Verse 18. Be not drunk with wine with excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being filled with the Spirit means we are controlled by the Spirit of God. You cannot be filled with the Spirit and be filled with yourself. You cannot be filled with the Spirit and be filled with sin and the world and all the other things. Emptied a vessel, he can fill an empty vessel. So the first thing is to be filled with the Spirit. Now one would say, well, then what does that look like? If a person is filled with the Spirit, what does that look like? How do I know? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Praise. A believer who is filled with the Spirit will praise God. A believer who is filled with the Spirit will be thankful for salvation and thankful for life and thankful for the family, and thankful for all the things we enjoy, understanding that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. God has blessed us and helped us, and we need to be thankful. So a person filled with the Spirit, instead of having, woe is me, I'm undone kind of thing, and I wish I had more, and God's not fair, and you know what, what did God do to me? That is not what a Spirit-filled Christian sounds like. Look at the second thing. Giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now get this word. Giving thanks always for what? Can anybody tell me what all means? Yeah, all means all, doesn't it? Now, giving thanks for all things. You mean, wait a minute. You mean giving thanks for 
difficulty, giving thanks for sickness, giving thanks for trouble at work. You see, God so perfectly superintends our life that he sends into our life exactly what we need at the time we need it. And God always then leads us through that if we, if we obey him. He leads us out of that into a better place. And God knows exactly what we need. The fact is, folks, most of God's work on our life happens in the valley and on the mountaintop. Somebody say amen. amen. I mean, you think, about, you think about your life. You think about the times when you have really been close to God and surrendered to him. And I'll say this. Uh, I've been a lot of places, known a lot of people. It is far easier walking with God when you're poor and when you're rich. I've had the privilege in my lifetime of knowing many rich people. And uh, I have observed that poverty is much easier to deal with than riches. So often the riches ruin you. Because the tendency is to trust in your riches, to trust in yourself, to, to think because of what I have done, I am now wealthy. I have all that I have, all the stuff that stuff I've accomplished. So understand that we need to be thankful for all things. Notice the next thing. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now you see... We look at the passage about singing and making a melody by itself as, a, as an entity by itself. Then we look at submitting unto one another as the entity. But actually, it's just part of the, the great instructional marriage. Submitting yourselves one to another. Now, let me ask a question. Is there ever a time when the husband submits to the children? Yes. I got one Yes. Right? Sure. Uh, Daddy, come play pitch with me. I'm too tired. I don't do that. Daddy, are you going to be my ball game this week? Well, you know, son, I've got some things I'm doing at work, and I'm I'm not sure I'm going to, you know. Is there a time that that husbands submit to their children? The answer is yes. Yes, it is. Are there times when a husband submits to his wife? A lot of times. Uh, if you want a happy wife, you know, there are a lot of times that you do things that aren't... Uh, by the way, my wife is a shopper. I should say she's a grazer. She's not a shopper unless she's shopping for the grandkids. But, but she goes in a store and she can wander around for two hours and be as happy as a clam. And shopping is the worst thing I can think of. I mean, it's like purgatory. But as a husband, as a husband... My dear, my dear father said to me one time, he did, uh, he's with the Lord now, but when he was older and wiser, he said to me, Dan, hope there comes a, life, a time in your life when you have enough money to let Aunt Ellen do all the shopping she wants to do. Well, I haven't gotten there yet, but, uh, <laughs> but here's what I've learned. I can drive my wife over to Belk's and I can go find a coffee shop or an ice cream parlor and I can be happy too. So, yes, you submit to your wife, but there are ways to do that that aren't too bad. You know. But the fact is, there are times that the husband submits to his wife. Now, by the way, these things were strange. In the first century, if you'd study the culture, this was strange. 
Women were little, were little more than just possessions. They were not treated with honor. Before the New Testament, before the teaching of Christ and teaching of the, of the, New, the New Testament, changed the whole culture. So that women are held in a high esteem as a, a more precious vessel. Would dwell with him according to honor. So, submitting yourselves one to another. There in the home, we all have to learn to submit. It's not, this is a passage not about women submitting to their husbands, it's about everybody submitting to everybody else. Learning to submit. The, he gets over to, to, the, to the guy, the, the job. You submit to your boss. You know, the children submit to their parents. I mean, it's, it's, it's all in there. All of the people learning how to live in this way of doing the right thing and submitting to the right people. Now, let's look at the roles that are assigned. I'm getting to the message now. I've got four minutes, which I won't make in four minutes, by the way. Uh, look at verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Well, what a standard. I mean, if you could think of a standard, that's the highest one you could think of. Husbands, we are instructed to love our wife as Christ loved the church. Think about that. Let that soak in your head a minute. What does that mean? What kind of love did Christ have for us? What kind of love does Christ have for us on an ongoing basis? Forgiving love? How many of you are glad for the mercies and grace of God every day. Think about that. When we, when we come into the throne of grace and ask for help, Hebrews chapter 4, we come into that throne of grace because of his mercy, because of his grace. So we need to be forgiving. Christ's love is demonstrated. That nonsense about well, I told my wife when we got married, I loved her, so I don't have to tell her again. That's ridiculous. Demonstrated love. When we talk about discipline of children in two weeks, we'll talk about how important love is as a background, as an atmosphere for discipline. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And his love is everlasting. His love does not change for us. He loved us before we were saved. He loves us now, and he will love us forever. Praise God. His love is unchanging. His love is patient. Aren't you glad God's patient? Uh, you know, when, when we mess up, when we uh, get off the path, when we do things, and God is so patient, he, he is that shepherd who goes out and finds the sheep. The 99 are there, but the one sheep is lost. And the gospel song says, I was that one lost sheep. And God is so patient with us. God is, his love is maturing. I quoted a little, a little phrase last week. When I see thee as thou art, I will love thee as I ought. To just comprehend the love of God, to understand, to try to comprehend as best our little minds can comprehend what God's love is like and what it means to us that God it should take away our fear uh, because the one who loves us also superintends us and cares for us and so therefore being maturing love developmental love uh, God is leading us down the road uh, 
the wonderful pathway that God has laid out for us. His love leads us down that road and allows us to go forward in his love. He has understanding love. David said, he knoweth our frame that we're dust. And God understands. But also, his love is committed love. You know, marriage requires commitment. The word, the word that is used for love, husband, love your wives, by the way, is the same word, the strongest word in the Greek language in love, for love. Same word as for God so love the world. Same word. In other words, we married people need to be committed to one another without exception. We need, you know, the, the words divorce or I'm leaving should never be on the mouth of any Christian person. Say amen. amen. Should never come up. That's not, that's not what we do. What happens is we forgive and we talk and we understand and then we reconcile and then we forgive those things. We clean out of the closet of our hearts from anger and bitterness and all those things that ruin our speech. So to love means to be committed. So husbands, be committed to your wife. Now, how do, how do I love her? What is the standard for this? Look at verse 28. Same chapter. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own body, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord of the church. So there's the standard. Love your wife, men, as you love your own body. We're in a, a uh, health-conscious workout in the, in the uh, gym kind of era. You can look at me and tell I'm not into that yet, you know. <laughs> I'm probably going to wait until I'm 85 and start doing that. But th the fact of the matter is, uh, we men look at our hair, if there's any there to look at. Uh, we look at our, how we look, we, we try to look nice, and we try to, you know. But the fact is, we are to love our wives as we love our own bodies. Uh, he says in, in the words, he uses these words in verse 29, No man hates his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. Nourish means to literally bring to maturity. In other words, to be concerned about your wife's development and the, the fact that she is loved and she is cared for and that she can grow as a person. And I will say this, what your wife is after 10 years of marriage is probably your fault. Somebody want to amen that? The women might. Men probably won't. The, the women are all going. <clears throat> the, fact, the fact is, we're, we ought to be concerned about how our wife is growing and how she's changing and if she feels confident and if her fears are less because of how you love her and how you treat her and what you do. And then it says to cherish. I love this. The, here's, the original word means this, to keep warm. Think about that. Isn't that an interesting word? To bring her to maturity, but to also keep her warm. Uh, my wife has cold feet. But anyway, um, <laughs> my wife hates this. I shouldn't do that. Ellen, I'm, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll apologize. Right. I keep using her. Well, my kids aren't here. When they were here, I always used him, and they really hated you know, but to keep warm, it means to have a tender love, to not just be, you know, cold and, and indifferent, but to have a warm love, to keep her warm, to make sure that she understands your love is real and is tender toward her. 
And then to lead, look at verse 23 of this chapter, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is savior of the body. I've done many, many weddings. I have done 70 in this building and 70 outside the building, so that's a lot of weddings. But I have never done a wedding that I have not done pre-marriage counseling, not one. Uh, I believe strongly that for me as a pastor to do a wedding, I must believe that this couple is joining in the right relationship, having the right standards, having the right goals. If that is not true, I won't do the wedding. So, one of the first things I ask in the very first session, I say to the man, Sir, are you ready and equipped to lead this woman for the rest of her life? Now you think about that a minute. You're 18 years old, you're 21 years old, whatever you are, and you're, you're asked, are you going to be the leader of this woman forever? But that's exactly what God says a man has to be. And let me tell you something else. Uh, we've had three leadership classes for our men in our church. About almost 40 men now have been through leadership classes. And what, one of the things we talk about in leadership classes is this, when a leader fails, others always fail with him. When a husband fails to be what he should be in the home, others are going to fail alongside of him. The children, the wife, all those kind of things happen. The husband is the head of the home. And therefore, as the head, he has to be willing to take that leadership. And I hear all kind of, well, my husband, he's just such a, you know, he's not a, he's not a leader. And I have to lead, you know, oh my, that, that ain't good. You know, the, the four-year-old leads, the teenagers lead. Hey, the leader of the home, according to the word of God, is the man. And he used to lead them biblically and, and in a godly direction and help them to become all that God wants him to be so he is to lead protect your wife look at look at if you would um, it is called he is a savior of the body it means to deliver to protect to make her feel safe to guard her uh, our one of our jobs as a husband is to protect our wives uh, to, things that you know that she's afraid of, things to make her feel safe. You know, if you have to get an alarm system or you have to put double door locks on your doors or whatever, make her feel safe. She needs to feel safe. She needs to feel that you care about her. When you walk down the street, walk closer to the traffic. Understand, protect her. Protect her against negative influences. Uh, a husband has to be willing to speak up and say no. That person you're, you're with all the time, she's a bad influence on you. You can't be with her. Because she, when you come home from being with her, you're always... And that does happen. And there are certain people, when you're around them, they're a negative influence on you. And the husband has to have the courage to protect his wife. This will sound strange to some. Protect your wife from the children. My father... Was, it was a good man, a great man. I, I learned much from him. And one thing I learned right off bat, you do not talk back to your mother. I never, you know, I know exactly what all that meant, what was going to happen if I did, but I didn't want to test it to see. But I'm telling you, children need to honor their mother. Amen? Amen. Children do not talk back to their mother. They do not speak to the mother as an adult, as a, a, a peer, 
A mother is a mother. And the husband needs to be willing to protect her from the children. And that may sound strange, but it's not. It's, it's good instruction. To make sure the children are respectful. The husband's responsibility also, look in verse number four. I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 4, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 4. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Notice who assigns the duty of being in charge of the discipline of children. Now, I don't have time to parse that out, how that works with husband and wife, but understand the responsibility is the man. Now, now listen carefully. The responsibility is not the Christian school. The responsibility for children is not the homeschool program. The responsibility is not the public school. The responsibility is the father in the home. Boy, nobody said amen to that. That's exactly what the Bible says. You fathers, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Nurture means to bring to maturity. Your goal for their children should be walking with God. Next week, I'm going to talk about that. Children are inheritors of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. What, listen to me. What kind of heritage are your children to you? What do they say about you? That's what, the, that's what it means. In other words, they are the opportunity for you to be seen as someone who is worthy because you've raised good children. You, you have taken, because it's not easy. And the temptations are great. But the fact of the matter is, the fathers are given the responsibility. So bring them up. Nurture and admonition. Uh, nurture means to instruct. Admonition means to exhort and to encourage. And then look at this, verse 26 of chapter 5. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But it should be holy without blemish. The husband's responsibility for her spiritual welfare. And notice the phrase and what it, what it says. The washing of water by the word. Now, until I looked that up, I just assumed that was the logos, the written word. That's not the word here. It is not the same word. It is the word rhema. means the spoken word. So what that means, sir, is your responsibility is to keep your wife under the preaching of the word of God. Under the teaching of the word of God. Where she is hearing the truth. Hey, you can choose to go somewhere else. You can choose to pick a church where everybody's tickling your ears if you want to. But the fact is, your family will pay for that. You are responsible for your wife's spiritual growth, and that one of the main things is that you have her under the preaching and teaching of God's word often. That's exactly what that word teaches. Care for her spiritual welfare. The role assigned to the wife, it's interesting that there's a whole lot to the husband, very little to the wife. You know, that's, I'm sorry, ladies, I know you wish that weren't true. Wives, submit yourself to your own husband under the Lord. You know, I mentioned before when I started this, so you need to learn to ask yourself why. You need, as, you, as you start reading the Bible, instead of just reading it, say, okay, why? Why should a woman submit herself to her husband? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but let me give you a few of them. Number one, by the way, the word submit means to arrange under. It's, it's a military term. It means to line up. 
In other words, here's, here's the guy and you're in the line and here's you next. You know, it's not, it's not a term about who is smartest or who has more uh, outgoing personality. It is strictly a military term, get in your place, line up. That's what the word means. You line up because this is the will of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. It doesn't mean you do it, you submit to her, to him, excuse me, in the, in the, way, in the same way you submit to the Lord, but it means that's what the Lord says. In other words, one of the reasons you submit your husband is because the Lord commands you to do it. He tells you to do it. Number two, because God appointed him the head of the home. Now, you cannot like that if you want to. You can say, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to obey him. I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, you can do that, but understand, you have a right to make a choice, but you do not have a right to make the, how that works out. God controls the, the, how it ends. So he says, because God appointed him at the head of the home, and you love him, you submit to him, because he's also a savior of the body. You appreciate the role that he has. You appreciate the fact that he cares for you. He comes home to you. He brings home the, the, the bacon, whatever. Uh, he, he does all those things that husbands do. And you appreciate the fact that he is taking care of you. And you also appreciate you, you yield to him because he is responsible for the spiritual value of your family. And you honor him for that. And you respect him for that. And you're willing to follow his leadership. Number, verse 22, same chapter. Submitting yourselves, submit yourself your own husbands unto the Lord. Respect him. Respect him for the responsibility God has given him. God has called him to be the leader of the home. Respect him for that position. You know, there's a lot, a lot in the world like that. Uh, if, I, if I'm talking to a policeman, I speak respectfully to the policeman. He may be a rotten scoundrel. I don't know him. I don't, he's just a guy in a uniform, but I respect the office. I respect the uniform. In the military, uh, you know, when, when the, the colonel walks in, or somebody walks in, you salute because you respect the uniform. You respect the position. Well, the position of the husband is the head of the home. And therefore, he should be respected for that. And he's respected because he protects the family. And then, what about the children? And we'll have more to say, by the way. This is the, next week is the turning point. We'll talk about children the last few messages. Here's what he says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. What are the last words? For this is right. It's a right thing to do. Now... Here's the thing, parents, and we'll get into this in a lot more detail in the next few weeks. Who is responsible to see that the children obey? The children? Are they just born obeying? Anybody in the room have children just born to obey? They just... Let me show you. We had a... In Chicago, we lived in Chicago for 10 years, and we had a, a, a spider plant in our living room. And spider plants, you, you hang them in a hanging basket in the living room, and, and these long things come down to the floor. So we had a lady visiting our house, and she had with her a little baby that was crawling. I don't, the baby wasn't walking yet, just a little crawler, you know. And so uh, the crawler was crawling around the floor, and we were sitting there talking. And, of course, the, the crawler started over to the spider plant. The spider plant was hanging down to the floor. So, theoretically, if she'd have gotten hold of the spider plant and pulled it down, she could pull it down on her head. All kind of bad things could have happened, right? So, 
We're, and I'm, I'm watching this with great interest. Here's a, here's a kid, doesn't talk, he doesn't, you know, doesn't, he's a little girl, doesn't talk. So the little girl crawls over to the, and just before she got to the spider plant, she looks around at her mother. <laughs> what was she doing that for? The mother said, no, don't do that, no! <laughs> now, understand, that is a child's nature. You know, they are born speaking lies. You know, you, you have a little baby, and a little baby wakes up at two in the morning and you're trying to sleep, and the baby's screaming their head off. You're, I'm dying. I've caught my head in the crib. There's, a, there's a, a terrible something in the bed with me. And you go in there, and the baby's perfectly fine laying there, but the, what did the baby want? He wanted you to come in there, and you did. Obedience, write it down, is a matter of the will. One time, when we were, I was teaching a class of young married couples, by the way, and uh, my, my youngest son, Brian, he's a unique person, he really is. He turned out to be a good man, and I'm shocked that he was, but he is. And uh, so one day, he was like three years old, three years old. And for some reason, that particular day, he didn't want to go in, the, go in his nursery class. Now, he always went in nursery class, but that day, he didn't want to go in. So, you know, Ellen, being the sweet mother she is, she uh, talked to him and tried to reason with him, and he still wouldn't go in his class. So she did what mothers do. She brought him in to the class where I was teaching and sat him on her lap. And so in the middle of the class, I'm going to use this illustration, I said, now let me show you what, let me show you what discipline is. You're cooking supper, mother, and you're, you know, you're stirring your pot on the stove, and the little kid comes in and says, I need a drink of water. And you say, just a minute, I'm busy right now. Just, I'll, when I get through cooking, I'll get you a glass. I want a glass of water! Honey, I told you now, just a minute, I'll get you a glass of water in just a minute. I'm busy, I'm cooking supper, I'll get you a glass of water. I want a glass of water! And I said, who's going to win? And Brian cries out, the kid! <laughs> of course, that ruined the whole class. It's the last time he ever came in there. But that's exactly what life with children is like. Are they going to win? Are you going to win? It is exactly, and let me tell you something. Listen to this. If you don't fix it while they're two, it comes back again when they're five. If you don't fix it when they're five, it comes back again when they're 10, 11, 12. If you don't fix it then, it comes back again when they're 16. I'm not making that up. We should raise three children. And I know what I'm talking about. And each time, listen, each time it comes back, it takes more to fix it is harder, it takes more, more energy, more whatever to get it fixed every single time. And every time it comes back, it's worse. And finally, by the, you know, I'll say this way, if you don't have them under control by the time they're six or seven, you've got a real problem. And I know that goes against all the Dr. Smell funguses in the world who are telling you how to raise your kid, but I'm telling you something, I know what I'm talking about. You have to learn how to discipline your children and to say no 
and make sure that they, but they, they are going to be held responsible for whether or not they obey, but you're going to be responsible for whether you made them obey or not. That's your job. Fathers, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And by the way, I want you to notice this. Look at verse, th verse 3. That it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. All the things that you think are funny when they're little kids, showing off, saying bad things, acting a fool, aren't funny when they're 18 going off to college. All those things that are born into our nature, that are part of our rebellious spirit, if, we don't, if our parents don't help us fix them and we don't fix them, it says if they learn to obey, it'll go well with them. And all of you have known people who are lawless people. How do they do at work? How do they do in school? You teachers, how do they do? You know, you can tell it. You can always see it. The discipline of a child is, is elementary. It is necessary. It is very, very critical. And then it says, honor your father and your mother. It means to assign value to them, to revere them. And by the way, notice, obedience comes before honor. Obedience comes before honor. They honor you because you have raised them properly. And if we do it right, it'll be well with them. Now, my friends, we've gone a lot tonight, but I want you to see, this is so important. The home is the basis of our culture. It's the basis of our church. It is the basis of our life. Next week, we're going to talk about the gift of children and sending them out to do the will of God in what our role is in making sure that they're doing the right thing. The next week we'll talk about discipline. And I'll warn you right now, I believe in spanking children. Just don't report me to whoever you report me to to get me thrown in jail. But I'm telling you, I do. And I'll explain to you when we get to that part what that means. All right. Well, you're still with me. Thank you. Uh, I didn't run any out and running too much off anyway. All right, let's do this. Let's have prayer. And then I believe, Pastor Todd, you have some thing you want to do here. So let's pray, and then Pastor Todd will come back. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Your love is everlasting to us, is gentle to us. Teach us to love like that. And yet your hand to us is strong. Teach us to be strong. Teach us to do the right thing because it's prescribed for us in Scripture. Teach us to follow your pattern and not the pattern of our culture around us. We pray that we'd live lives that are not like the heathen, but we should live lives as Christians. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Billy, come on up, brother. Oh, Ilya has met with uh, me and some of our deacons tonight. He has read through our articles of faith and our church constitution and his agreement. Uh, he shared his testimony of salvation and believer's baptism, and the deacons that were present in the meeting were unanimous in their approval to present him for membership in, into our church. So at this time, uh, those of you that are uh, members of Marian Baptist Church in the voting age, uh, we're going to vote uh, into our membership. This is, by the way, this is Dallas' brother, in case you didn't put the Kashtaria together.